Um, but with that, we'll go ahead and uh, pray our giving liturgy together. So if you want to join me with that, the words are going to show up on the screen here in just a minute, and we will pray that together. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Join us as we continue to worship. Father, I, I want to confess the ways that in the last couple weeks I have wanted other people or other groups to have you higher in their lives without giving much attention to how high you are in mine. So Father, I'm, I'm just taking the plank out of my own eye and asking that you would be made higher in my affections, that my trust in you would be higher, that my faith in you would be higher, that my um, willingness to step out for you would be higher. Lord, we pray as a church that we would be marked by love for our enemies, that we would be marked by boldness in proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of Jesus, and that in a world that is just constantly yanking the tablecloth out, the rug is being yanked out from under us, Lord, that we would continue to have our feet planted firmly on the rock. And so you come to find us, and you've come to meet us today, and so as we turn our hearts and minds toward you today, would you help us to hear your voice and do what you say? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you, Caleb. That was, that's really exciting that that happened. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 9. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to get into this. Acts chapter 9. It's just good to be preaching to people, also to you, but it's nice to kind of have a little mix of both. Let me just kind of frame again where we are. When we were last together, when we exited the book of Acts, we were looking at the early church that was focused in Jerusalem. It, the church grew rapidly in the city of Jerusalem through Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7. At the end of Acts chapter 7, uh, Philip, nope, Stephen, is stoned to death. That was a little quiz for you. I knew the right answer. And that sparks what's called a diaspora, a scattering. So the early Christians scatter to the regions around Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, which is exactly what Jesus promised would happen. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as they step out of Jerusalem, they are in territory that they are familiar with, but at the same time it is foreign. 
And what we have been kind of saying is that the early Christians in this section of the book of Acts, 8, 9, and 10, where they experience rapid growth with new people and in new places, they are good companions for us as we step into territory that is both familiar and foreign. What has been made abundantly clear to me is that since about March of last year through now, the world is a fundamentally different place. If you are someone who is saying, I can't wait to go back to normal, I hate to break it to you, there is no normal to go back to. There's only a future to press forward into and to walk with Jesus into. And so these chapters of the book of Acts, 8, 9, and 10, briefly kind of show us how it is that we step out in faith into territory that is familiar and foreign. And this morning, we're coming to one of the most well-known passages of the Bible. We are coming to Acts chapter 9, what is called by many the conversion of Saul. I take issue with that nomenclature, and you'll see why in the sermon. I don't think it's a conversion for Saul. I think it's a homecoming. This is one of those passages. It's the, one of the most important pieces of the Bible in the New Testament. It's one of the most important developments in theology in the early church. And this is why I said to our team last week, I may only get to preach this passage once. And so there's this, this feeling I have of wanting to get it right. And uh, I would humbly offer that I think I've gotten at least close in how we've figured out how to get through this. And what I want us to do this morning is we meet Saul of Tarsus, who will later become Paul, who will later become probably the most influential person in the early Jesus movement. I want us to use our sanctified imaginations to imagine what it is that brought Saul to this point. And to use our sanctified imaginations, we're going to look closely at the text. Uh, We're going to look at Greco-Roman culture and Jewish culture and how those collided in a period called Second Temple Judaism. We're going to look at what it meant for Saul to interact with the Jewish power structures of his day and what it meant for Saul to encounter Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so I want you to come away with me this morning by use of your sanctified imagination, not to a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago, but to a city in Asia called Tarsus, some distance away, And a long time ago, but not a long, long time ago. Every once in a while, you meet a child who is bright, engaged, and whose interest in a topic later blooms into a career in which they are particularly successful. So a little girl is obsessed with playing doctor on her dolls, and one day she becomes a famous surgeon. A young man is very gifted from a young age in art or with words and later becomes a famous author or uh, painter. And a few thousand years ago, in a strict Torah, Torah-observing Jewish home in a city called Tarsus, there was a little boy named Saul who fit this description. He was bright, engaged, and devoted to reading and memorizing and learning the Torah, the five books of Moses. From a young age, it was very obvious to those who knew Saul, to his family, to those in his city, that he had the potential to be a great teacher of the law of Moses. Growing up, Saul would have been led by his parents to pray the Shema, which is a prayer out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, meaning there is only one God. He would have prayed that three times a day. He would have regularly traveled to Jerusalem for feasts and holy days. 
His family was rigorous in observing the Sabbath, fastidious in their observance of the kosher laws as to what was put on their dining room tables. Saul would have learned that his circumcision pointed to holiness, a separateness from the Gentiles, from the goyim all around them. And it is that separateness that Saul would have been raised to be so keenly aware of. Not in the sense that the unpopular kid at school is aware that he is different from the more popular kids, but in the sense that someone thinks they are better than somebody else. Saul and his family, faithful Jews that they were, believed themselves to be morally superior to the Gentiles around them by the very nature of their birth and by the very nature of the way that they lived. The Goyim lived with no rhythm. They lived with no pace to their lives. Saul and his family lived with pace and rhythm derived from Sabbath and holy days. The Goyim lived in debauchery, eating whatever they wish. Saul and his family, his people, they practiced discipline with what they ate. Their bellies would not be their god. The Goyim viewed sex as a toy and as a plaything, but by the very nature of his circumcision, Saul realized it was a gift to be stewarded, to be cherished. Saul grew up in a period that scholars call Second Temple Judaism. Why Second Temple? Well, because the First Temple had been destroyed. The First Temple, constructed by Solomon, planned on by David, uh, was destroyed. And so there was a Second Temple, significantly smaller, constructed under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra, Ezra after the Babylonian exile. When Solomon's temple was destroyed, it led to a national crisis of conscience for Israel. It led to a national crisis of conscience in much the same way that the events of January 6th of this year have done and much the same way as September 11th of 2001 have done. They led to a national crisis of conscience. For faithful Jews, like Saul and his family, they believed that the destruction of the temple, that the Babylonian exile, were proof that immorality and idolatry had taken over the nation of Israel, that their flirtatious infatuation with the Gentiles had caused them to be exiled and the temple destroyed. So Saul and his family, who are extremely observant Jews living outside the Holy Land, believed that the way forward for God's people was through the most strict observance to the law of Moses. For Saul and his family, obeying the law was not simply a matter of personal holiness— it was a matter of separateness and moral superiority over the Gentiles. The only way forward was fastidious holiness, strict adherence to the laws of Moses and the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, and, when necessary, violence. By the time Saul was a teenager, he'd been identified as a particularly bright student of the Torah. He left home. He went to Jerusalem, where he studied under a Pharisee named Gamaliel, one of the most significant Torah teachers of his day. While studying under Gamaliel, Saul would have learned everything Gamaliel taught about the scriptures. He would have phrased his teaching just like Gamaliel. He would have dressed just like Gamaliel. He would have walked just like Gamaliel. He would have sought to be like Gamaliel in every way and to apply the teaching of Gamaliel to righteous Jews, ordinary people trying to be faithful. But while in Jerusalem, Saul had another curriculum, zeal. In Saul's later writings, he describes himself as zealous, a word that to you and I indicates what? Like impassioned belief. Some of you are here wearing Browns clothings. You feel zealous about the Browns winning today. 
Good luck with that. For Saul and Jews like him, for Saul's and Jews like him, Jews in Jesus' day and the two to three centuries leading up to the ministry of Jesus, zeal wasn't an emotion. It was an action. To keep the house of Israel pure, to keep it separate from its Gentile neighbors, it became clear to Saul and to others like him that violence would be necessary to root out evil and wickedness in Israel and to defend it from the corrosive forces of Greco-Roman culture. So two moments, two moments from Israel's history would have driven Saul's, Saul's zealous quest for righteousness in Israel. And the first would have been 1 Kings 19 or 18 when, when the prophet Elijah goes toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal. They're testing Baal against Yahweh. Yahweh wins and all of the prophets of Baal are put to the sword. What would have shaped Saul's imagination for zeal was a guy out of the Old Testament named Phineas. Phineas heard that a Jew was sleeping with a Gentile woman, so he took a tent stake, busted into the bedroom, and rammed it down between them. The text says the Lord saw Phineas's zeal, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness, that most desirable quality among faithful Jews was credited to Phineas through zeal, through violence. So Saul, a rising star in the strictest circles of Judaism, well-versed in the law of Moses and really the whole Old Testament, Saul knew anything anybody had ever said about the Old Testament. He was ready and willing to resort to violence if and when the faith of Israel was challenged or questioned or under threat. And as Saul rose to fame in Jewish circles in Jerusalem, another individual, a renegade rabbi, was also growing in influence. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Saul and Jesus were close in age. It's interesting to think that as Saul was becoming a man and stepping out in his own right, growing in influence in strict Jewish circles, that out there in the countryside of Judea and of Galilee was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, claiming to be the Messiah that Yahweh had promised. Jesus' claims presented a problem, of course, for Saul and other faithful Jews, because for centuries it had been the clarion call that the faith of Israel was monotheistic, that there was one God, that any other God was an imposter, and a particularly hard argument to make in the first century when there were dozens, if not hundreds of gods, to worship and to pray to. Israel had gotten into fight with Rome, with Babylonia, with other global powers for the right to worship one God and one God only. And now here is a man, a Jew, a rabbi, claiming that the Messiah had come, that he was the Messiah, and that he, a human being, was also God. No, 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 no. In Saul's mind, Israel was under threat. Men and women were being led astray by this man. Israel's sons and daughters were once again being enticed to idolatry. His faith was being corrupted. And this Jesus, who had said he created a new temple and a new law, needed to be dealt with. This faith had to be stopped. This faith that bloomed and blossomed even after this Jesus was put to death. So Saul of Tarsus was glad to see Peter and John arrested. Saul was pleased to see these apostles beaten to within an inch of their life. Saul was smugly content. He was proud as he watched Stephen's body crushed as he heard his bones breaking while he was put to death. And so Saul was delighted to break into homes where these Jesus people 
now called followers of the way he was pleased to kick in their doors and drag men and women from the houses by their hair and throw them into prison. He was proud to go to Damascus, where we find him today, going to Damascus to root out the followers of Jesus there. And so we meet Saul on this journey in Acts 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. This insurrection, in Saul's opinion, had gone on long enough. The high priest was playing softball, playing political games, when what was needed was zeal. Saul was ready to go the distance. He was ready to arrest these followers of Jesus, followers of the way. So here is Saul traveling to Damascus. He's accompanied by a few servants. He's riding a donkey. Listen, Saul's an important guy. He doesn't have to walk anywhere. He gets, he gets a company car. He gets a donkey. He's not reached horse level yet, but he's got a donkey and he's riding it. And while Saul is on the road, something absolutely unexpected happens. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, not the only mission that Saul will undertake in his life, but the next ones will be very different. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. By the way, overlay this on the Christmas story. Shepherds in a field, light shining around them. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. While traveling on the road to Damascus to arrest and punish these followers of Jesus of Nazareth with an intent to kill, the most unthinkable thing happens. Saul encounters Jesus of Nazareth. Saul imagined this guy to be dead. Saul believed the claims of this Jesus' resurrection to be a conspiracy theory, to be fake news. Saul believed this man to have little importance, to be very little else than a rebel, a heretic, and an insurrectionist. And now he was addressing Saul on the road. And do you notice how Jesus handles him, by the way? When Jesus encounters 16, 17, 18-year-old dudes fishing with their dads or being a tax collector because it's the only way to make a dime, they feel like failure. So Jesus comes and says, hey, you, come, follow me. He offers an invitation. Saul's a grown man. He's got his own ideas. There is no conversation. There's a clonking over the head that knocks Saul blind, and he is dragooned into the way of Jesus. I love that. Some of us, Jesus offers an invitation to, and others, he just needs a smack upside the head. Just be glad that those of us that are especially stubborn have not been struck blind for three days, right? N.T. Wright, uh, who I quote a lot, he's probably the most influential New Testament scholar in the world right now, has a wonderful biography on the book of, uh, called Paul, a biography. And he uses throughout it um, his sanctified imagination to imagine the life of Saul, and I'm indebted to him a great deal for the sermon. He speculates, or I would say uses his sanctified imagination to wonder what exactly happened to Saul in this moment when he encounters Jesus on the road. 
N.T. Wright says that it was common, and it was, for Jewish men of Saul's caliber, faithful, prayerful men, to, as they traveled, meditate on Scripture. That's what Deuteronomy 6 says, by the way, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you sit, when you stand, when you, lie, when you go to sleep, when you wake up, when you walk along the road, meditate on this law day and night. And so Saul is meditating on the law of the Lord, and as he's walking, and T. Wright imagines, he is in his mind using Ezekiel chapter 1 as his prayer. Ezekiel chapter 1 is where Ezekiel is given a vision of the Lord's throne chariot. It says Ezekiel sees wheels within wheels. If you were in middle school or high school choir, you probably sang, Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air, right? Ezekiel sees wheels within wheels, and he sees a platform, and on that platform is a chair, and on that chair sits the Lord, is Ezekiel's vision. And so there's Saul walking along the road, meditating on scripture like a good Jew should, and he's, he's meditating on Ezekiel 1, and there in the heat of the day, riding on the donkey, he gets such a clear image in his mind of that wheel and the other wheel, and, and he begins to chew on this and meditate on it, and he sees in his mind's eye the Lord's platform. And after a little while, he starts to wonder, am I seeing this with my eye or my mind's eye, or doesn't make a difference? But he's having an encounter with the Lord, which he feels like is proof in the pudding of the Lord's calling on him to do violence against the way of Jesus. And he sees the wheels, and he sees the platform, and he sees the chair, and he sees a robe. And Saul, in his mind's eye, goes up and up and up and sees the knees and the waist and the torso and the gilding of the throne. And then he sees the face, and it's Jesus who says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This Jesus sitting on the mobile throne chariot that only Yahweh himself, only the King of Kings, only the Lord of Lords is permitted to sit on there sits Jesus asking Saul one of the most important questions he has ever heard. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the next thing Saul knows, he's been recruited, commissioned into Jesus's program. Get up and go and to the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now look at starting with me at starting in verse seven. We're just going to read it through. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Okay, so not just a bad taco, was it? Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind, so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. How humiliating. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Verse 10, this is when it gets good. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, different than the Ananias struck dead back in Acts 5 and 6. <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. I love this line. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Verse 13. But Lord, <laughs> pardon, excuse me, he says. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. He is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. In other words, Lord, I don't think you're thinking this through. This is a trap. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will, this, is, this gets real, verse 16. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him. Do you imagine Ananias' hand shaking as he reached out to touch a terrorist? Reaching out to touch someone who had done violence against him and his friends and his family? So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. I once was blind, but now I see. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Paul will repeat, well, when Saul becomes Paul, he'll repeat this story multiple times. And in Acts 22, this is what Paul says Ananias told him. The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. We're going to look more closely at Saul's life next week and the rest of his story, but... I don't, want to mi- I don't want you to miss that in a moment's notice, in the blink of an eye, that Saul is dragooned into the way of Dr- Jesus. He is drafted, and he is made one of its key leaders. Listen to this quote by N.T. Wright. It's a little long, but it's good. What drove Paul from that moment on the Damascus Road and throughout his subsequent life was the belief that Israel's God had done what he always said he would. And that temple, that what he would, that Israel's scriptures had been fulfilled in ways never before imagined. That temple and Torah themselves were not, after all, the ultimate realities, but instead glorious signposts pointing forward to the new heaven and earth reality that had come to birth in Jesus. Paul remained to his dying day, fiercely loyal to Israel's God, seen in fresh and blinding focus in Jesus. Neither Paul nor his communities, this is important, neither Paul nor his communities were engaged in comparative religion. They were not saying, we tried one way of being religious, and now we think we have a better one. Nobody thought like that in the first century, not a Jew, certainly. They were focused on what we might call messianic eschatology, the belief that the one God had acted climactically and decisively in and even as Israel's Messiah, a shocking, blinding reality that would change the world. Now, my Bible, on the top of Acts 9, it says, Saul's conversion. The headings were put into your Bible by the editors to help you out. And I want to humbly suggest to you that this is wrong. Saul does not, Saul is not converted from one faith to another in this moment. Saul comes home. Saul has a eureka. Saul had taken the puzzle pieces of his faith and life and put them together. And while they made a whole picture, it was obvious that something was missing. And then in this moment on the Damascus Road, Saul finds the missing piece that makes the rest of the pieces come together. This is why we say the Bible is one story that points to Jesus. And yes, if you are wondering, this is why a key piece of following the way of Jesus, of reading the Bible as one story, calls on us to practice evangelism even to people who are committed Jews because they've not come home yet, because they've not had their eureka. 
The Bible is one story that points to Jesus. Saul did not change teams. He just won the game. He came to the end. He came to the end result of the story. The faith of Israel always pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah and to the fulfillment of God's promises through that Messiah. And Saul dedicates his life from this moment, not to violently crushing wickedness and idolatry, but instead to helping his Jewish siblings seeing precisely what he saw on the Damascus road, that the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Jesus. As we close, I want to rewind having planted a theological thing in the ground that's really important. I want us to rewind to encounter, to Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road. Saul is traveling to Damascus with one purpose, to violently put an end to the Jesus movement in that city. In the name of zeal, Saul had no problem with violence. Acts 9.1 says that Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Some scholars even wonder if Saul has already killed to this point. If he hadn't, he was willing to. And if he had killed while he was in Damascus, it would not have been a crime of passion. It would have been intentional and cold-blooded. Saul gladly stands by while a man is crushed to death in Acts 8. And throughout this season of his life, I imagine that Saul struggles to understand how no act of violence can put an end to the insurrection. Whenever Saul dragged a man or a woman from their house church and threw them in prison, it felt like three more came and took their place. Anytime they found a house where Christians were worshipped and were worshiping and burnt it to the ground, five more house churches popped up. How could that be? It is what Jesus says to Saul on the road that explains how, despite gruesome violence and death, the people of Jesus continue to grow. Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, Saul, what are you doing to my people? What are you doing to them? He says, no, what are you doing to me? What kept the early Christian movement going in the face of tremendous persecution was Jesus' very presence in their midst. They knew what Saul discovered in Acts 9. They knew that Jesus is willing and eager to identify with his people in their pain and in particular their persecution. Jesus is willing to share the pain of the rejection and the suffering that comes on his behalf. And years later, when Saul is known as Paul, he writes a letter to a church in Corinth And he tells them, by the way, for the sake of Jesus, I've endured a great deal. He says, five times I've received 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And on one of those times, I spent a day and a night adrift at sea. I've been in danger from thieves, from Jews, from Gentiles. He says there's been toil and hardship and hunger and sleepless nights and cold and exposure. And he says, I endure all of this with gladness because I experienced the presence of Jesus in my midst as it's happening. So in First Corinthians, excuse me, in Second Corinthians chapter 1, he says, even though I despaired of death, I relied on the God who raises the dead. He says, God comforted me in that moment so that I could comfort others. He experienced Jesus' presence in his midst. And so the church fathers and mothers say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church through beatings and mass killings and being crucified upside down and sawed in half and fed to lions, the people of Jesus 
followers of the way, they multiply and they mobilize. They proclaim and demonstrate through preaching and proclamation and signs and wonders the good news of Jesus' rule and reign. And they do it with boldness. And of all things, most disturbing in this cultural moment, they do it with love for their enemy. What rises in them is not a need to correct or defend or overthrow, but to love, to serve. And so it is today that in China, where Christians hide from the government in secret churches that meet in the dead of night, the church is thriving. So it is that in Cuba, where the government reward those who are cultists with businesses and money and openly punish Christians, the church is thriving. So it is in the Middle, of East, in the Middle East, where if you put your faith in Jesus, if you are lucky, your family banishes you, and if you are unlucky, they behead you in the middle of the night, the church is thriving. And in these places, where following Jesus carries a cost that you and I cannot even begin to imagine the church thrives. Followers of Jesus, followers of the way, they mobilize and they multiply. They proclaim and demonstrate the good news of Jesus' rule and reign with boldness and, surprise, love for their enemies. And there's a lot of fear right now. I mean, you can, like, taste it. There are those who say that the church in the U.S. is under attack and in need of defending. There is those who say that now is the time to stand up, that now is the time to draw a line in the sand, that now is the time to take our country back, to overthrow those who would do us harm. My friends, for decades, the church in China has lived under an oppression that makes our worst nightmares seem like a vacation. They are not plotting an overthrow. For decades, the church in Cuba has been pressured with a crushing force. They are not plotting an overthrow. For decades, the way of Jesus has been violently opposed in the Middle East, the very region where it began. Christians there are not plotting an overthrow. They have better things to do with their time. They have one life to live. Because we got forever in heaven, and the only two things I can't do in heaven is say, I'm sorry for sinning, and tell somebody else about Jesus. And so they're living in the freedom of forgiveness and expanding the borders of the kingdom. See, what they see is that Saul, they see what Saul saw so clearly. Ooh, that's hard. They see what Saul saw so clearly. Bad sentence. He saw that Jesus is willing to identify with his people in their pain and persecution to share their sufferings. And so knowing that he is in the midst of their people, knowing that no violence, oppression, or persecution could ever stamp out the Christian movement, knowing, in the words of Paul in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, believing Jesus into, in, to be in their midst, the early church, churches in oppressed places, now they're radically committed to proclaiming the good news of Jesus' rule and reign. They are radically committed to this, to loving their enemy, which, by the way, Jesus says, is the zenith of maturity as followers of his way. You have reached maturity when someone posts something on Facebook that you disagree with, and what rises up in you is not disagreement or even I know better than them or how to correct them, even if you want to do that lovingly. What rises in you is compassion. That is maturity in the way of Jesus. Jesus measures maturity not by we know why we know, not, not by what we know or by our doctrinal correctness, but by love. 
Does doctrinal correctness include in that? Absolutely it does. But it's love that Jesus asks us about. There is fear. And my friends, the fear that is in the air right now is far more dangerous than any politician or, co- or government or company puts us in. That fear is far more dangerous because it causes us to forget that come what may, Jesus is in our midst. If our worst fears come true, if we face real persecution, and I mean real persecution, and I want to hold the strictest of definitions that we are still about a football field's length times 100 from that. It will be hard. It will be difficult. But it will not be impossible because with God all things are possible. If this is what Jesus asks of us to share in his sufferings, to live a cruciform life with all of our shakiness and our fear we will walk into it because that's what he's asking us to do and as we walk into it here's what we will do we will do the very things that the followers of Jesus have always done we will proclaim the good news of Jesus' reign by the way unfiltered unhindered by politics left or right or otherwise. We will demonstrate the good news of the kingdom through justice and through signs and wonders, through care for the lost, the least, and the last. And most of all, we will walk into it overflowing with love for our enemies. And in so doing, we will show the world that we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Steph, do you want to come lead us in response time? At the end of our services here at Regen, we um, always lean into response time because in Matthew 7, Jesus said, blessed is he who hears my word and and does what it says. And so we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of it as well. We want to be transformed by what we hear. Um, So um, I want to take just a minute here and invite you um, just to kind of uh, take a moment of reflection. How did the Father get your attention today? So if there's something that kind of in this sermon sparked your attention, just to kind of lean into that. Is it something that he's asking you to repent of? Is it something he's inviting you to take more of? Um, For those of you who are are experiencing fear, um, what what has replaced Jesus as as what is giving you your identity? Where is that fear coming from? So I'd I'd ask you just to take a minute to to kind of press into that um, in your own mind and kind of ask the Father, what do I fear? What am I, why am I not able to trust you kind of in this season? Um, If you're someone who's just really struggling with anger or... um, feelings of frustration with the people that are around you or that you're seeing on Facebook and that's the overwhelming emotion you're feeling instead of compassion or love just to take a moment and to say to the Father what, where is that anger coming from? Where is that frustration coming from? And, and help, um, help me kind of understand how I can press more into compassion and love for them. So um, we'll take just a moment here and then um, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll close in song.
Father, we come before you this morning and we confess for those of us that fear is at the forefront of our mind, we confess that we put our hope in the things of this world and not in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would make your presence and your strength and your peace so very clear to us this week. Father, for those of us who are feeling angry and frustrated and out of control, Father, we confess that you are the one who is in control and that we can trust uh, your guiding strength and your guiding presence this week, no matter what happens around us. Father, for those of us who are checked out, who are apathetic, um, I just pray, Father, that you would ignite in us a passion for the lost, a passion for your word, a passion to see your kingdom come. And that, Father, that um, no matter what we're struggling with today, that we would press into the boldness of proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come fill us with your very presence this week and um, just empower and, and give us your boldness and your courage. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Lord, it's good to be reminded of your worthiness. King Jesus, you alone are worthy of blessing and glory and honor. And so when we ascribe those to others, help us to see you. Jesus, I pray for each one of us that we would have a profound encounter with you this week that really cements in the trajectory of our lives. Pray this in the worthy name of Jesus. Amen. Love you so much. It's been good to be with you. We'll see you next week.